Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It's Behind the Bastards, the podcast that yet again opened with atonal noises because I couldn't. Couldn't think of an introduction. Uh, well this is partly the pr- fault of Sophie, uh, who is not here today um, mm. for reasons of, of, of pure selfishness. Um, no, she has a uh, bunch of meetings. <laughs> unbelievable number of meetings. My guest today is Aiden, uh, Aiden Bonacci? Uh, Bonacci. Bonacci, yes. Aiden Bonacci. Aiden, you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Aiden Bonacci. I'm a... Uh, as of today, 28-year-old uh, autistic theater major. I tweet a lot. I do a lot of like freelance work. Uh, it's nice to be here. Nice to have you on, Aiden. And you are, uh, it's your birthday, so happy birthday. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for making the time to show up on the episode. Today, we're, we're going to talk about something, well, fun is the wrong word. Have you heard of the Judge Rotenberg Center? I'm, hmm, that sounds familiar, but not 100%. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's not a good place. Um, obviously, this is the show that this is. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the reasons you're obviously, you're, you're a, a, an actor, you do theater stuff, but you're also, yeah. as you said, autistic. And I wanted to bring in somebody who was for this episode, because we're going to be talking a lot about kind of well, I would say the dark ages of autism treatment, but this is still going on. Um, oh, although it, it oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's bad. Um, it's really bad. Um, and this is, a, I think, when I, I 
I reached out online looking, uh, to, you know, wanting to do an episode that was going to touch on a lot of issues of like autistic, like healthcare for autistic people. Folks expected mm-hmm. I was either going to do Hans Osberger, who is absolutely a bastard. Oh, um, God. Yeah, or talk about there, There's a number of things that this could have been, but we're talking about the Judge Rodenberg Center. And specifically, we're talking about um, the guy who uh, who started it. So I want to start by noting that autism didn't enter the DSM as like a diagnosis until 1980. Obviously, people were mm-hmm. using the term before then. It was a thing that a lot of medical professionals recognized existed. But there's often a gap between when something is sort of like recognized and when it actually enters the DSM. And even when it entered yes. the DSM in 1980, the diagnostic criteria for being declared autistic were, um, to put it bluntly, more or less bullshit. Um, somebody couldn't be autistic if their symptoms weren't apparent before they were 30 months old, which we now know a lot for a lot of people. It's like not until you're, you're three or four that like stuff become that symptoms become apparent. Um, mm-hmm. And a bunch of things we now recognize as signs of autism weren't recognized back then. It was it was bad, like it just in terms of like from a from a, a clinical standpoint, they didn't have a good handle on like how to know if somebody was autistic or not yet. Um, and kind of making matters more complicated was the fact that many of the doctors who were kind of pioneers in autism research were shit shows as well. Um, again, Hans Asperger, the guy whose name gave us Asperger syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Worked with the Nazis to euthanize disabled people. Uh, not a. Oh, you gotta love that. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk about him at some point. Mm-hmm. I bring all this up to to acknowledge that the history of even like recognizing autism is fraught, um, and the history of educating autistic people through like the 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 school system is equally problematic because obviously, like once you know that this is a thing. Schools are going to, you know, try to develop standards for how to how to teach people who have autism. And um, mm-hmm. generally, they're going to do a bad job of this. Um, that's been most of the history of the education system and autism. And I have a little bit of personal knowledge here. I was a paraprofessional for a special ed classroom for about 18 months. The kids oh, I nice. worked with. Yeah. And it was not. um that We had a, there were kids with a variety of, uh, of, of, of different kind of things. going. Yeah, on. A lot of them. Mm-hmm. were autistic um we had a, a kid who had a severe who'd had a head injury and like had had literally had like a chunk of her brain scooped out in a car accident um mm, we had yeah. uh, kids with with down syndrome we had you know uh, in my classroom they were mostly um i think the term we the term we used at the time was nonverbal, which meant they they couldn't communicate well or at all in a lot of cases via language and mm-hmm. you know we would develop we would use sign language we would use like cards we had a bunch of different kind of systems we would try to use to help the kids right uh, right communicate and all of my my coworkers cared a lot but we also had effectively zero academic training there were like out of I don't know twenty or so people in the the unit that I was in, there were like two people who had gone to school to any extent for what we were doing, and the rest oh, of wow. us were just kind of yeah, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Yeah. yeah, um, and I would say you know from the I've mentioned being in special ed a couple of times, and some people I think make assumptions about the kind of the worst case scenario for that. I for, I don't believe we did anything that was like harmful in terms of our, our our teaching techniques we weren't using any mm-hmm. of the stuff that we'll be talking about today any of like the really brutal mm-hmm. methods that have been used but i don't think anything we did most of what we did was very useful either because we didn't really mm-hmm. know what we were doing like we, yeah. we it, 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 that's part of the problem with i don't know the whole when when kind of the education system intersects with healthcare in any way is um 
most you of don't teachers. really get good results. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't. Yeah. And as somebody who was in special ed from like first grade through fifth grade, uh, you, you definitely got a lot more of they really wanted to try, but there really wasn't much they could do in terms yeah. of like helping out and whatnot. They really cared, mm-hmm. but you can definitely tell compared to like other classes that they are kind of shorthanded. Yeah, shorthanded and not, you know, there's a lot of specialized knowledge that is required, both in terms of like how to educate kids who may, you know, interpret kind of verbal command or verbal stimuli or whatever in a different Mm -hmm. way, who may be, who may have kind of sensory, um, like, who may fundamentally like kind of see and hear differently than everybody else. Like that requires a lot of specialized knowledge to work with. Outside of that, there's also like medical stuff. Like, again, I was going to this job with no training. And when I st- I was dealing with like a grand mal seizure every day. Um, and it yeah. was, uh, I didn't like, we didn't, we didn't like get good information on what to do with that stuff. It was kind of like learn on the job, which is not, not a good, you shouldn't be learning on the job if you're treating children having seizures. seizures. Yeah, no, that's something you really want at least a few weeks, if not a lot more training on yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, now, some of the students that I worked with had really serious issues with violence. And I, again, I've mentioned this before. Um, mm. For most of them, this was an occasional thing. It would be maybe once a year. And it wasn't, you know, I, it wasn't their fault. It was something kind of flipped in their head. And they would they would get aggressive right. generally because they were frightened. Um, but there were some kids, one particular kid uh, that was my main job to deal with, for whom violence was a really daily issue. And the problem was severe in this kid's case. When you're talking about kids with problems like that, where they are either very self-injurious, and this this kid I'm talking about injured himself more than he injured other people, that's a serious issue because he's not yeah. only a danger, he can he could seriously injure other people. Um, he could seriously injure or kill himself. Um, that's a, a real issue. And it's a real issue that our school, which was a normal high school, was not at all equipped to handle. And I feel very yeah. comfortable saying I had no business working with a kid whose needs were so specialized. Um so I understand the need for residential facilities that can take care of some of, of kids with issues this severe on an ongoing basis. Yeah, because there's just cases like that where you're going to need people who are specialized in that mm-hmm. type of work and can be responsible and not have to be like, oh, shit, what do I do? Yeah. And, and there are for some of these kids, you need 24 seven care because, mm-hmm. again, you can't necessarily predict their self injurious behavior or they need a tremendous amount of consistency in order to make progress. And you just can't do that in eight hours a day at a public no. school. Um, so the problem. So, again, I, I'm starting this by saying I get that there is potentially a need for residential facilities. Mm-hmm. But as we've discussed on the show before, m- many residential schools with kids for behavioral issues are fucking nightmares. And I'm talking about the Elan school here. I'm talking about like, oh, kinda, yeah, yeah. Uh, troubled kids schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and those places are nightmares in catering to kids who are, if not neurotypical, then at least not, you know, generally not dealing with autism or a, a particularly specialist diagnosis. They're kids with like a behavioral issue. They're kids who got into drugs or something, right? At, yeah. at a place like the Elan School. When you take it to a further step of specialization where you're dealing with with children with autism or children with other very specific diagnoses, that's a whole nother ball game. Um, and it gets a lot sketchier because there's a lot less specialization to deal with these places. So if you kind mm-hmm. of can bill yourself as an expert in whatever these kids have, you can get away with a lot of really terrible treatments. And people <sighs> looking at, in from the outside will be like, well, I guess that's just what you do with those kids, you know? 
Um, yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah. And that's the subject of today, the Judge Rotenberg Center. So our story starts with a man named Matthew Israel. He was born at some point in the 1930s. I have not found an exact year. He was a contemporary of Michael Dukakis. They were friends. So around when Dukakis was born, as I'm going to guess, when uh, mm-hmm. when um, Matt Israel was born. He was born in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, his dad was a lawyer. He was the youngest of two brothers. And to the extent that Matthew has told interviewers about his family, he claims that his parents were loving and seldom spanked him. Um, so that's good. Uh, and that's yeah. going to be relevant here in a little bit. But punishment was not a central focus of his parents' parenting strategies. Um, he went to Brookline High School, and he was good friends, again, with Michael Dukakis, who would later be governor of Massachusetts and would also fail to become the president. Um, mm-hmm. Matthew and Michael ran cross-country track together and were good friends. Uh, this will become relevant later. Now, we know a lot less about Israel's early life than I would prefer, but we do know that in high school, he was kicked out of an honor society after he spoke out against the school's plan to allow athletes and people who pursued non-academic extracurricular activities into the club. He told one interviewer that it was too much of an artificial reward system. So he didn't like that the gifted program was being extended to people who were good at, I don't know, like music and theater. Oh, yeah. Okay. One of those. Yeah, one of those guys. Like, I just, yeah. if it's not math, it's like, yeah. It's not football. I mean, no. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just, um, you, he's a little bit of an elitist, maybe, like an yeah. academic elitist in specifics. So in 1950, Israel started at Harvard. Uh, he was fascinated with behavioral psychology, and he had the good fortune to be taught by one of the single most influential psychologists in the history of the discipline, a guy named B.F. Skinner. Skinner was probably the dominant psychologist of the mid-20th century, and he specialized in what's called behaviorism. Skinner mm-hmm. believed that all human behavior could be boiled down to environmental operant conditioning and the reinforcing of selected responses with rewards or punishment. Skinner essentially rejected the idea of free will, which he acknowledged, quote, seems to question dignity or worth, as in, if people don't have free will, if we're just robots responding to stimuli, maybe we don't have any dignity or self-worth. But as he pointed out, this also meant that under his analysis of behavior, blame for bad behavior and credit for good behavior were both shifted to the environment. So you're never responsible if you do bad or good things. It's the result of of the stimuli that has been Hmm. fed into your brain. Okay. Um, which is, you know, not my view of reality. It's a pretty bleak one. No, yes. <laughs> Very but, glass half empty. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bleak in some ways because it kind of reduces, it flattens the the moral universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means that, like, potentially, if you can figure out how to feed in the good stimuli to people's brains, you can stop, you know, genocide and whatnot. You could you could deal with all of that just by feeding people different different input. Um, his hope was that uh, accepting this, like accepting this reality about how people worked would lead to a new organization of society based around social controls that would be more purposeful than the random positive and negative reinforcements in society. In other words, like we're just the result of the stimuli that's been fed into us. Um, but Mm -hmm. because it's being kind of fed in randomly and nobody's, nobody's making a concerted effort to make sure that like specific good stimuli you know kind of are 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 put into people's heads um that's why all this messed up that's why society is so messed up and if you could just be consistent and whatnot you could fix all these problems that's that's skinner's kind roughly skinner's idea i am again i'm flattening a a decades-long 
career in, in psychology. Yeah, yeah. This is the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Skinner wrote, quote, man's struggle for freedom is not due to a will to be free, but to certain behavioral processes characteristic of the human organism, the chief effect of which is the avoidance of or escape from so-called aversive features of the environment. Physical and biological technologies have been mainly concerned with na- natural aversive stimuli. The struggle for freedom is concerned with stimuli intentionally arranged by other people. The literature of freedom has identified the other people and has proposed ways of escaping from them or weakening or destroying their power. It has been successful in reducing the aversive stimuli used in intentional control, but it has made the mistake of defining freedom in terms of state of mind or feelings, and it has therefore not been able to effectively deal with techniques of control which do not breed escape or revolt, but nevertheless have aversive consequences. It has been forced to brand all control as wrong and to misrepresent many of the advantages to be gained from a social environment. It is unprepared prepared for the next step, which is not to free men from control, but to analyze and change the kinds of control to which they are exposed. So you see what he's saying there? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing what he's saying. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of ways you can definitely misinterpret that and construe it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you can see both sides of this to where like yeah. right now in the U.S., the ideology of freedom, as it's often interpreted by particularly folks on the right, has led mm-hmm. to the situation where, like, people are showing up armed outside of schools because they don't think kids should be made to wear masks during a pandemic. Yep. Um, and that is a problem. And he's kind of pointing out that, like, um, but the kind of the, the, the tech, the, the angle he's looking at this from is that, like, the ideology of freedom um, has has made it see has has kind of made it seem like a bad guy sort of thing to try yeah. and analyze the stimuli people are exposed to and alter them in order to change their behavior. Um, and Skinner thinks that that's what we ought to be doing, right? So Skinner was interested in nothing less than the controlled future evolution of human beings. With proper conditioning techniques, he believed all conflict, irresponsible behavior, and the calamitous consequences of freedom could be erased. As Skinner wrote, quote, a scientific view of man offers exciting possibilities. We have not yet seen what man can make of man. And, uh, I mean, can see the... He's definitely looking at it from a positive angle, yes. but it's just, there's a lot to work around with that, at least in my opinion. There is, and and I, I think Skinner, a big chunk of what he's doing is kind of a response to everything that happened in the first part of the 20th century, the disasters mm-hmm. under state communism, the, the genocides yeah. of the Nazis, the horrors of, of the world wars, and this idea that like, well, this is clearly terrible. We could, if we can make people better, if we can like, if we can feed them better stimuli, we can stop all this. At the same time, he's kind of doing, he's, what he's saying, you can find not dissimilar things that the Nazis were saying. Man, can, we can make the human race better by kind of. I wasn't going to bring up (laughs) eugenics right away, but I was leaning towards that. And Skinner's not a eugenicist, but anytime you're saying we can improve the human race through like selective decisions and whatnot that may limit people's freedom, you're not on a totally different wavelength. Then you can also draw some comparisons to like the idea of the new Soviet man and these, it, 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 these strains of thought, these, I, and they're all coming from a similar place, which is that like in the early half of the 20th century, you're seeing all of these horrible calamities, mm-hmm. um, the human caused calamities, these terrifying wars and famines and genocide. And you've got a lot of people being like, 
well, maybe we maybe we could do better than that. Um, the problem is that it can lead you in some. And again, I, I really want to emphasize Skinner's not a Nazi. He's not talking mm-hmm. about oh, eugenics. Yeah. But you can see you can see how people could take some of the things he's saying and turn them in unsettling directions too. The road can be to hell can be paved with good intentions. Yes. Yeah. And I, I that's that's not so much Skinner, because he's certainly not the bad guy here. Well, yeah. Um, but that's kind of where his ideology leads Matt Israel. Um so Matt fell in love with Skinner's theories. At the library one day, he found a book his professor had written, but not assigned to the class, a book called Walden Two. And I'm going to quote from a write-up in Boston Magazine. Quote, the controversial book is about a utopian society where behaviors can be modified for the benefit of all inhabitants. It is based on Skinner's theory of operant conditioning. If an action is rewarded, it increases the likelihood that the person will perform the action again. This is, after all, how Skinner had taught pigeons to play table tennis by rewarding the behaviors that led to their game. Israel later said of the book, It was a real inspiration. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. It was a feeling similar to those claiming to have religious conversions. I wanted to start a real utopian behavioral community. And this is, um, he's not the only one who gets uh, impacted this way by Walden, too. Mm -hmm. There's actually a whole subculture that forms around trying to build utopian communities based around Skinner's ideas of operant conditioning. Um, Obviously, I'm also interested in utopian communities. I plan one day to start one that will build a paradise on Earth before it's torn asunder in a hail of fire and bullets from the FDA. And Matt had the same ambition. Interesting. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, who who wouldn't want to build a paradise based around the fundamental moral precept that you shouldn't be told by the government what pills are and aren't healthy or what pills do and don't contain lead. I think we have the freedom to ingest all sorts of brain pills and to claim that they cure all sorts of diseases. And I, 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 I challenge the FDA to increase their munitions budget enough to stop me. So Matt had a similar ambition uh, without desiring an armed conflict with the FDA. But Mm -hmm. being a young PhD candidate just getting started in the world, he didn't really have a way to achieve this dream. And sort of his his desire to start a utopian community and his lack of resources led to a period of depression for him. He later said, it was a very difficult period. I thought about committing suicide. If I couldn't bring a community into existence, what sense was life worth living? So he worked on his doctorate and he helped B.F. Skinner teach pigeons to play ping pong. In 1960, he received his doctorate and he used his formidable skill as a hype man to try and raise capital to start a firm selling teaching machines. His goal was to spin the profits from this business into a utopian social project. But the business didn't do well. And in 1966, Israel was not particularly close to achieving his dream. That year, though, he attended a Walden II conference, where other weird B.F. Skinner nerds talked about how to start their own utopian societies. Eighty-three people attended, and he met a couple of folks who were willing to get involved in such a project with him. And it was a very minor scale at this point. So in 1967, he and a couple of these folks start a communal home in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and it's, a, a, as utopian communities go, very small. It's basically Matt Israel, uh, a guy and his girlfriend, a teacher and her young daughter named Andrea. Um, so not a big community. And this little girl, Andrea, was, according to Matt Israel, a real problem. He later said, quote, she walked around the living room with a toy broom hitting people. She also screamed and threw tantrums off enough that Israel claims, I was forced to do behavior modification. So this is the first time that he tries to alter a human being through operant conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or at least his first recorded time. So I don't know. 
that's a weird I, I guess you could see it's not any different than like any other parent being like, oh, this kid's doing something they shouldn't be doing. I'm going to I'm going to like punish them or, or try otherwise to get them to stop doing the thing. Yeah, but um, it's not your kid. It starts getting dicey. Yeah, it starts getting dicey. And I guess like. It's kind of unsettling to I, I don't for whatever reason, it's less unsettling to be like, oh, you know, my kid is is throwing tantrums. So I'm going to like do this in order to try to get them to stop. That's less unsettling to me than saying like, oh, this kid is engaged in bad behavior and I'm going to condition them to do better behavior yeah. through like, yeah, operant. Yeah, it's like not you're grounded, but you're going to get modified. It's like, yeah, you're what? going to get modified. <laughs> That's unsettling a little bit. Um, he says he got the mom's permission to work on her child. We've got only his word here. I have not heard any interviews with any of the people who are in this with him. Um, but given what comes next, I will note that Matt Israel is really good at convincing par- parents to let him experiment on their kids. Uh, so I don't have trouble believing that he Uh-oh, got Oh, there's some water to it. Some yeah, water. yeah. I think he probably did get Andrea's mom's permission. Okay. Uh, the methods he used to alter her behavior were called aversives. Put bluntly, aversives are unpleasant stimuli done to a person or animal in order to change their behavior. The classic example of an aversive would be a punishment, although aversives are not always administered as punishments. Because like a punishment is somebody does someone does something undesirable and you do something undesirable to them to make them associate the two, right? That's a punishment. Mm-hmm. Aversives can be punishments, but they can also occur before the behavior. There's a, a number of ways to apply them. We'll talk about that a bit later. Okay. The first aversive he used was time out. When Andrea would scream, Matt would put her in a bedroom, close the door, and hold it shut. He would keep track of how long she screamed at him through the door using a chart. Over time, her tantrums diminished, but Israel also found the act of holding a door shut on a screaming child to be exhausting and demoralizing, for obvious reasons. Yeah. And one, yeah seems kind of bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> At one point, his patience ran out and he slapped Andrea, saying, there's no screaming and time out. Now, this would mark the first time Matt used physical violence on a child to alter behavior. And he doesn't say in interviews what impact this had on her. But according to a 1985 interview with Israel in the Boston Phoenix, here's what came next. Quote, he began to use a combination of rewards and punishments with Andrea. I was a tremendous source of reward for Andrea, he says. She was very cute, very smart, and very appreciative of attention. I found that a combination of extraordinary rewards and occasional aversive made an environment that helped change her whole personality. Matt, Israel's training had begun with Skinner, who believed you didn't need to use aversives, but Israel could see the results. Punishment is a fact of culture, he says. When the police fine you for parking in a no-parking zone, that's punishment. Andrea had been a spoiled brat, but she became a pleasant, attractive, charming feature in the house. So that's a little unsettling, too, right? That I don't like the it. attractive. I don't like that part. I don't like that, and I don't like describing a human being as a feature. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that's that's a little unsettling, <laughs> too. It's like two bedrooms, one bath, one attractive feature. Yeah, one attractive small child. Yeah, there's <laughs> oh, God. the way he talks about people is consistently unnerving um, and will only get more so. But you know what's not consistently unnerving? Huh, um, I don't know what. Products and services. Oh, yes, the products and services to help keep this yeah. ch- afloat 
And and we guarantee here at Behind the Bastards that less than a fifth of our sponsors have ever referred to a small child as an attractive female. Oh, <laughs> and that's as good as you're going to get in the podcast business. Look, honestly, that's impressive. Yeah, I we 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 work hard for those numbers. Nice. <laughs> The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love 
into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. So at around the same time Matt Israel started his Arlington Commune, he had formed a national organization with a very dystopian name, the Association for Social Design. Its objective was to establish a network of associated experimental communities in cities throughout the world. He was essentially taking, there's this subculture of Walden 2 fans who are all trying to build these little utopias based off of Skinner's ideas, and he's trying to unite them in kind of like a physical social network. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a guy named Hilke Kuhlman, who's a, a historian historian of this subculture. He's a historian of like specifically the people who like rallied around Walden too. Uh, and Kuhlman writes that Israel's goal was to take B.F. Skinner's utopian experiments a step further. Privately, Israel started to call his work Walden 3. That said, his first utopian experiment did not end well. As happens with most of these experiments, the adults themselves couldn't get along, and eventually the whole thing fell apart. I've never heard an interview with the other adults who lived with Matt, but I would very much like to. I suspect his behavior was a larger part of things than he let on. He tried another communal living situation after that, which also fell apart. And this quote from the Boston Phoenix gives some context as to why. The problem with the houses, says Israel, was that the residents weren't really buying into the behavior uh, mod mode. There was very little control over the participants, Israel says. They could always move out. Kuhlman, who has studied this whole subculture extensively, also blames Israel for the collapse of his two utopian projects and the collapse of the Association for Social Design. From a write-up in Wired, quote, In Living Walden 2, Kuhlman blames Israel, suggesting he, as the commune's patriarch, wanted his inhabitants to live lives based on altering one another's behavior. The others in the communes and the association thought this was no life at all. So... You get what he's saying here. Like this is yeah. this is an extension of what he's saying about this kid. He's treating these people not like people, but like oh. machines. And he's angry that they have the ability to leave. They don't just <laughs> passively take his input. They have the ability to say like, "Well, I don't like this, and I'm going." And he's yeah. he's not a fan of that. No, it's not enough control for him. And you can see how a guy whose attitude. Who's, who's, who blames the failure of his utopian communes on free will might not be the guy you want having total control over a group of uh, autistic children who are forced to live in his residential facility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you can yeah. see how this is heading in a bad direction, right? Mm-hmm. When his issue is, uh, it's the fact that these people can leave is the real problem. Ah, uh, that's what we call yeah. foreshadowing. <laughs> So it's my opinion that Matt Israel is sort of a predator. And I base that in large part on the fact that once his two utopic experiments failed because the adults wouldn't do whatever he said, he decided to start a school. Specifically, he wanted to start a school for kids whose disabilities would render them less able to defend or advocate for themselves. This is not far from how he framed it. And this is what he says in an interview about his decision to start a school. Quote, Maybe a school for the emotionally disturbed, Mm -hmm. he says. Behaviorism is the kind of thing, particularly in these days, that has been allowed to be applied to the handicapped. So he's like, adults won't let me do this to them, but people (sighs) let you do this to handicapped kids. And and as a note here, we're going to read a number of quotes from articles and individuals who use terms for people with autism and other other, um, uh, diagnoses Mm -hmm. that are not 
modern or appropriate terms. I am not mm-hmm. changing the wording these people used because in part it's very useful in understanding how they think about these kids. Um, like yeah, the you'd fact be that, erasing parts of it and th- yeah. that would be kind of lessening the monsters or the... Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I, I get it 100%. Yeah, yeah, and I don't want to be doing that. So... Israel claims that he got the idea to start a school when he visited a hospital in Providence. And this hospital had a residential program for emotionally disturbed kids. And when they say emotionally disturbed, a lot of these kids are, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't call them like, I'm I'm sure they're, they have, uh, they're emotional, but like they're, they're kids with, who are maybe autistic, who have something going on and there's not any kind of good treatment program. And so people register that as like, oh, it's emotionally disturbed when it's like, no, really, you don't know how to talk to this kid or communicate to this kid or or help them like integrate into society and so they're unhappy like that's what a lot of times we talk about emotionally disturbed that's what we're talking about is these kids who just nobody people have not figured out a good way to integrate them into society and so or want to integrate them people don't want to integrate them yes and they're unhappy for very justifiable reasons Mm -hmm. um so the director of this residential facility, like Matt Israel comes to visit and like, look at how they're, they're working with these kids. And the director of the facility asks him, quote, do you think behavior modification would work on autistic children? Israel told him, yeah, I think it will. And so he decides to, he starts a unit in that hospital to experiment on this with six kids using a mix of food rewards, spankings, timeouts, and spraying them in the face with a bottle of water to alter their behavior. Right? So from the what beginning- What are they, cats? Uh, yeah yeah what are they cats he loves spraying kids in the face that's actually a big part of for decades his his um and and again when we talk about like critiques of skinner skinner when he's talking about Mm -hmm. altering people's behavior is not really a big fan of aversives but israel really focuses down on them and seems to think that like neg like punishments and and in a lot of cases physically violent punishments like spanking Mm. are the best way to 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 end behaviors that are bad from these kids um so he starts this he does this for nine months or so working with these kids and it goes well enough at least by his just definition of it that in 1971 he starts the behavior research institute in providence rhode island now autism again was not a recognized dsm diagnosis in 1971 right, right. but there were of course autistic people there have been autistic people since the presumably oh. the beginning of the human race absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, one of the things that's very frustrating is like the the anti-vax people will be be like look autism's gone up a thousand percent in the last 20 years you know, uh, this is evidence that there's some poison it's like no you just called these kids emotionally disturbed and hit them in the 70s like yeah. it, they you were still them, there you, you just put them in psych wards <laughs> yeah you put them in psych wards they you, you sometimes they got killed like it was mm-hmm. never very uh like they were around though you just pretended they weren't they weren't um yeah so they, uh, on day one, as he starts the Behavioral Research Institute, Israel has two patients. It starts from a very small standpoint. His his first two patients are a schizophrenic adult male and a teenager with autism. Um, from the beginning, Israel's plan was to alter behaviors in his patients that were antisocial by using aversive stimuli. And again, he was very focused on punishment. The BRI saw early success. And again... I don't know, like, I don't have an objective way of evaluating whether or not it was successful, but it was successful in the financial sense and that he was able to convince people that his work was good and get more money and get more patients enrolled. And generally, it is the state enrolling these patients, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, so they, they probably saw it as a success. Yeah. Yeah. They considered it a success. And it's also, these are, these are kids who have generally very severe behavior issues and are the state certainly like, well, obviously a regular high school isn't a good place for them. This guy says he can help even the most extreme kids. Let's pay him to take mm-hmm. them off our hands. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Um, and there's always with this, it's always framed as like, well, no one else could help these kids, but there's always a huge, it, there's always a huge angle of like, well, but you didn't really want Try. to. You wanted to get rid of these kids, and he mm-hmm. offered you a hole to put them in. You know, that's always a a chunk of this. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, the BRI, yeah, was was financially successful early on. And in 1972, Israel opened a residential program for the school in a wing of a facility for schizophrenic patients. By 1975, he'd opened a second home in Seekonk. Two years later, in 1977, he founded a West Coast branch of BRI in California. He opened several more re- residential homes on the East Coast after that. And by 1980, he had completely given up on his dreams of creating a utopia in favor of building schools for these kind of, of, of patients. Uh, Wired talks briefly in their article about his early methods. Quote, they used aversive therapy at BRI. They used positive reinforcement too, food and toys and a near continuous stream of compliments for behaving well. But it was the aversives that drew attention. Teachers pinched students, spanked them with spatulas, stuck ammonia pellets beneath their nostrils and put them in white noise helmets. Israel saw aversive therapy and still sees it as the best response to self-injurious and disruptive behavior. He almost never doped his pupils, a position he holds to this day. He believes drugs often only sate the patient. They do not solve her problem. Israel then is now put his trust in punishment. So, so he going on there. didn't yeah. drug them, but he didn't, drug them. he didn't drug them. But he give him a smack. He'll give him a smack. He'll 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 spray them with ammonia. Like there's all sorts of Jesus. And it, it it is like he's right in that a lot of like the medication treatments that are given to these kids are horrible. Like they are. Oh, just kind absolutely. Of, drugging them into non-existence in a lot of cases which is Mm. fucked up and he's recognizing that and he's also this is part of how he gets a lot of parents on his side because parents see what it's like to have their kids drugged like this and they're horrified by it and he's Mm -hmm. like no 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 simple punishment i can stop these behaviors the problem is that a lot of what he's doing is torturing them into not doing these behaviors Mm -hmm. um and, and when you hear pinching right you may think that's kind of weird or even that's kind of fucked up, but you're probably imagining something a lot less violent than the reality, right? Like a pinch we don't consider to be serious violence, I wouldn't no, I would say. No, but now I'm nervous. Yeah, yeah, you should be. So <laughs> the very first report on abuse within the Behavior Research Institute came out in 1973 as the result of a uh, uh, an investigation by the Massachusetts Human Rights Committee. They produced a report on conditions in Israel's school that pointed out that Matt advocated pinch kids and squirting water in their faces. Teachers were under strict pressure to end bizarre behavior in their students in under two weeks. They could lose their job if they did not eliminate a behavior by deadline. And so as deadlines approached, teachers started, quote, pinching harder and harder to meet their goal. Workers at BRI told one Human Rights Committee member they felt that, quote, they were turning into monsters. A 1979 allegation of abuse in Israel's facility provides more graphic context. Quote, 
On October 28, 1978, according to court documents, Corwin said, and Corwin's the person making the complaint, says she mm-hmm. saw Israel fingernail pinching the bottoms of 12-year-old Christopher Hirsch's feet. Israel was administering a behavioral reversal lesson to get Hirsch to stop defecating on rugs and in the shower. Corwin said she heard the boy cry and scream in pain. The next morning, a BRI worker named Nancy Thibault got sick to her stomach when she saw Hirsch's feet. There were open blisters and a reddish substance oozing from them, she testified. Employees continued to pinch the boy's feet. Corwin returned to work after two days off. She was horrified at what she found. The insteps of both Christopher's feet had a considerable amount of blisters and a considerable amount of open bloody patches where the skin had been entirely removed, she said. Oh, fucking hell. So this is not like a pinch you your mom would give you or something when she got like ticked at you. Like these are causing like, bleeding wounds. Like trying to rip the skin off almost. Yeah. And a lot of it is because they're doing this over and over again, sometimes dozens of times, because, right, that's what you, you want to have consistently be reinforcing, I guess, uh, that, that whatever they did was bad. Yeah. And again, when he talks about this, Israel's always like, well, we're trying to stop self-injurious behavior. And I think people think about that, like kind of some of the stuff I saw. If, that was, if that's literally how it was being used, it was like, look, we're just trying to stop them from potentially killing themselves. I guess I would say, well, I don't know. But he's also defining self-injurious behaviors like pooping on the ground, which I don't is not going to kill. No, you. it's it's not good. Like you should not poop on the ground, but yeah. that's not a danger to the child's life. Um, and again, I'm not saying it would be justified to pinch bloody sores in them if they were slamming their head into something. But that's how he tries to frame it is that like, yeah, I know this is horrible, but we're trying to stop them from permanently injuring or killing themselves and it's just such a serious situation the reality is that they're doing this for any kind of behavior they consider unpleasant Mm -hmm. Um, and by trying to fix this problem they're making dozens more yes yes significant issues now, the entire time BRI grew and expanded across the East Coast and over to the West Coast, there were constant investigations and allegations of misconduct. From the beginning, what is happening in these schools is marked out as fucked up and problematic. That 1973 report by the Human Rights Committee ended with deep concern over the impact of such aggressive behavior modification techniques could have on an individual. Quote, This is especially true when the individuals are severely handicapped children who may not comprehend the reasons for being subjected to such intense systematic procedures. Procedures. Without specific criteria for determining deviant behaviors, an individual with behaviors of questionable deviancy might be subjected to a therapy program of excessive intensity merely because his parent or teacher had a low tolerance for the particular behavior exhibited. So they're saying what I'm saying, which is that like, well, you say this is only for the most severe cases, but the severity of a bad behavior is determined by the person doing violence to the child. And sometimes it's just because they don't like a kid making noise. Um Again, I'm not saying that any of this would be justified if it was only being used on kids with severe behaviors, but it's being used on for anything that the that the the staff find unpleasant. The slightest excuse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The head evalu- evaluator on that report was a guy named Nazareth, and he later told an interviewer that the students he saw at Israel school had been turned into robots. Quote, he controls everything. He's an egomaniac. It's either his way or no way. I'm absolutely amazed he's still in business. Uh, now, the article in which Nazareth gave, Nazareth gave this quote was published in 1985. And Nazareth was amazed because between 1973, when the reports of abuse at his facility started, and 1985, a ton of people in multiple states had tried to shut Matt Israel the hell down. And they all failed. 
From the Boston Phoenix, quote, In April 1976, Israel expanded his program by founding a parallel reward and punishment school home for six children in Van Nuys, California. The National Society for Autistic Children, NSAC, now known as the National Society for Children and Adults with Autism, the country's leading advocacy group for those with autism, took a long, hard look at Israel's expansion. On December 27, 1976, Israel was officially bounced from NSAC following allegations that he was practicing as a clinical psychologist, directing both day and residential programs in the state of California without obtaining a professional license. Israel denies the charge, uh, denies the charge, charged that pain infliction and other physically coercive techniques are now employed when it is not necessary to do so. Israel was chided for his apparent lack of respect for rules and regulations. There is unsatisfactory evidence that you are reputable and responsible in relation to the operation of a licensed facility and or that you have the ability to comply with applicable regulations, the department wrote. First, you have shown a disregard for the law by operating your program without first obtaining a license from this department to do so. Also, you are apparently engaged unlawfully in the practice of psychology without securing a California license. So his work in California gets shut the hell down because he's abusing kids and he doesn't even have a license to be treating them in the first place. that's wild that he was able to open that up in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of seems like someone should have caught that before. Yeah. Yeah. Israel was ordered to cease and desist operation or face legal action that would close down his school. The day after the scheduled shutdown, according to published reports, the students' parents proclaimed that they had taken over the facility and were running it as a co-op. The school, which had started as a branch of the BRI in Providence, severed ties with the parent institute and formed its own corporation, BRI of California. Matt Israel went from the guy in charge to just a consultant. The new school applied for a license, and the move was helped by California Governor Pat Brown, whose law firm represented BRI of California. The Institute got its group home license and it received the only permit ever granted by California to use aversives, physical aversives. So he's told you can't be teaching here because you're abusing kids and you have no license. And so immediately the school says, oh, now we're a a parent co-op and Matt has nothing to do with this school. Um, But also we're going to use our connection to the governor of California to get a license to use all of the techniques that he got in trouble for using. But hey, he's not around anymore. No, Um, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Spoilers, he's still there. Um, Yeah. (laughs) They just are claiming that now he has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... And this is versions of this are going to happen again in the future. Um, it would come to be, it would become something of a pattern for Israel. In 1978, the state or the city of New York balked at Matt Israel's request to increase per pupil tuition from thirty one thousand six hundred dollars to thirty eight thousand dollars. The state investigated, and according to the New York Times, found BRI was in violation of New York state law. They ordered Israel to stop using physical aversives on New York State students in his Providence facility. Instead, Israel threatened to kick them out. This prompted a group of New York City parents to sue the state and federal court and keep their kids at BRI. Oh, fun. Yeah, the parents won. We'll talk more about the parents throughout this episode, but it's important to note right here that from day one, he has enjoyed tremendous support from a lot of parents who have kids in his facilities. Mm -hmm. Others have sued him, obviously. It's not universal, but a lot of them will sing this guy's praises to the heavens. This is partly because BRI's number one rule is that they will turn no child down, no matter how severe or violent their behavior. So again, if there's a kid that you know you can't deal with as a parent i can't i'm not capable of handling my child's behavior if mm-hmm. you're a teacher and you know like we our school can't handle this kid's behavior you know bri will take them and that's 
a big part of the support that he gets is because yep. a lot of these parents and these these schools are just overwhelmed with dealing with these kids and BRI is a lifeline. So they f- they're afraid that if the school shuts down, they're going to have to take care of these kids again. Or to be fair, some of them are concerned, well, if the school shuts down, the only place for my kid is a mental institution where they're going to be doped up 24 hours a day. You know? Yes. Yeah, so like, that's, yeah, that's understandable in a sense. Like, yeah. it's like sometimes you just aren't capable of handling it, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's again. Israel is pretty clearly the bad guy here, and I think a oh, lot of absolutely. parents are making questionable calls. But they're not—they're not villains. They're not doing this to be cruel. No. I'm sure some of them are shitty parents, but a lot oh, of them are yeah. just oh, like, yeah. I have no idea how to handle this kid, and obvi- and there's not resources for me. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the wild west in a lot of this period in terms of like any kind of of treatment for particularly kids with much more severe behaviors. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, I get the desperation, even though I think it leads them in the wrong direction. It's not unreasonable that they're desperate. Mm-hmm. But you know who's not desperate? The products and services that sponsor right. this po- podcast. That's right. They are they are content in the knowledge uh, that 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 you'll love them. Um, you will spend the money. Definitely, a hundred percent. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. In January of 1979, the state of New York sent a follow-up team to BRI for a three-day unannounced evaluation visit, and the report was remarkable. Quote, The January team found BRI to be a professionally conceived, well-documented, and rigidly implemented behavior modification program. Its effect on the students was the singular most depressing experience that team members have had in numerous visitations to human service programs. So... They both are, this is a very Ooh. professional, well-documented, rigid, they're very consistent. None of this is like slapdash or haphazard, and it's mm-hmm. the most depressing thing we've ever seen. And but That's saying yeah, something. <laughs> that's saying something. The report listed the behavioral modification programs that a number of students were under. One kid's program was as follows. Biting self, 15 minutes helmet, no vision, white noise, hand play, spank, butt, Noises, pinch, butt, out of seat, spank, butt, biting others, cool shower, five pinches, foot, hands to head, muscle squeeze, shoulder, clapping, say no, rocking, water squirt. These are... Yeah, that's... That's a list. It is, and it's... Again, as someone who did this and was, I think, bad at teaching special ed, I can't imagine punishing most of these but like like a lot of kids will do like you know they call it hand play you know Mm -hmm. they'll do like they'll flap or something they'll make motions with their hands specifically like we never punish that it's just a thing that like well okay whatever who cares like it's not hurting them or anybody else yeah Um, i know in my experience it was definitely one of those things where they never I, I did get the timeouts and obviously like some punishers like being ground and whatnot. But then there'd be things where I because I do fidget a lot yeah. and do the hand waving thing just to like focus and yeah. It's weird how people who at least were trying to work in special ed were less reactive to it than people who weren't. Yeah. It just seems like Yeah, it's like you gotta have kind of a right mindset with dealing with that because it's not harmful. It's just no. Trying to focus. It, it may yeah. look weird, but 
Yeah, it's not hurting them or anyone else, as opposed to, no. like, there are some behaviors on this that would need to be dealt with. Like, if a kid is biting themselves, you, oh, yeah. you want to stop that somehow, right? But like, Yeah, you got to stop that. But <laughs> I'm not convinced a white noise helmet is necessarily the right way to deal with it. That said, we had a couple of kids who, who did bite themselves, and I never, we never figured out a good way to stop the behavior either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Like, they're, they're, But it, it does seem like a lot of the things that they are dealing, punishing with aversives are not bad for the kids they're not really problems other than that the parents or the the staff don't like the behavior you know they're rocking they're clapping they're waving their hands that's not bad for them mm-hmm. it's just the, the it annoys the staff and so the staff punish it with punching or with pinching and with with spanking and stuff mm-hmm. and i i find that pretty disturbing yeah um and I should note that the white noise helmet they're putting on these kids is described elsewhere as basically being a football helmet with an opaque screen that blocks vision while white noise fills the person's ears. Now, the squirting that they'll do, the water bottles, was generally water mixed with compressed air. But mm-hmm. some students would also have ammonia sprayed near their nose every 15 minutes as an aversive, which is real pretty fucked up. Like, yeah, I'm not wild fuck- about the water. but That's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Ammonia is definitely worse. Um mm-hmm. And while a lot of these aversives were administered as punishments in the traditional sense, that was not always the case. And to explain what I mean by that, I'm going to quote again from the Boston Phoenix. One of the most bizarre measures they saw was an Israel technique dubbed behavioral reversal lessons. Israel believes that for his treatment to work, particular behavior must occur often enough for the people to get consequated, that is, rewarded or punished. When targeted inappropriate behavior comes at a low frequency, Israel believes it makes it more difficult for the student to grasp the connection between the behavior and the consequence. At BRI, Israel has solved his problem by having the staff encourage the beginning stages of bad behavior. Kathy, one of the New York residents, was stealing food and drink. To get her to stop, the BRI staff first urged her to steal so they could punish her. The New York team found these instructions taped to her classroom table. Kathy is to receive one stealing opportunity per hour. She should be prompted to steal a juice squirter, and a spank is to be administered. If Kathy does actually steal the juice, she is to receive the helmet and white noise for 15 minutes. So what the fuck is the point then? (laughs) That's pretty bad, right? Yeah. I'm not like, that's real abusive. Uh, Yeah. Like forcing kids to engage in bad behavior or pushing them at least to engage in bad behavior so you can punish them often enough to stop the behavior. This seems kind of unhinged. Yeah. Um, And the state of New York agreed. They called consequating entrapment, which feels fair to me. Absolutely. Yeah. The evaluation team summarized their feelings thusly. Rather than being a program of neglect, which harms children by not assisting them in growth, the BRI program utilizes a current professional ideology to deny children the opportunity to grow, to deny them any choices, to deny them normal experiences in leisure time pursuits, to deny them any opportunities for fun, to deny them the opportunity to demonstrate anything other than a few pre-selected responses. So you're not letting these kids evolve naturally as human beings, you're even forcing them to do bad behavior so you can punish them. Mm-hmm. If you see like occasional bad behavior, you're forcing it to become constant so you can punish it. Mm-hmm. You are, you're denying them the right to grow the way a person grows. Yeah. Uh, and so it could be like, Hey, I don't like yeah. this kid. I can just make them do this or plant something on them and then yeah. I can punish them. And then I can punish them. Yeah. You get the feeling that did happen. Um, yeah. Christ. You know, it's uh, again, unfor- you know, yeah, it's messed up. 
Yeah. So the state restricted BRI's use of physical punishments on New York students. That's the result of this investigation. But they mm-hmm. and they made an agreement with BRI that physical aversives would only be used in situations where a child posed serious physical danger to himself or others, and only after less violent aversives had already failed. While all this was going on, while this whole set of investigations is going on, a Los Angeles-based placement agency, which like places kids in facilities, voted to halt funding to BRI after a review of their operation found serious injury had been caused by the program's aversive therapies. Parents again fought to block the move, saying their children would be sent to state hospitals where they'd be drugged, put in solitary confinement, and worst of all, given electric shocks. Keep that in mind. The parents Mm -hmm. won again. California Governor Pat Brown was said to have been a major reason for this. Surprise. The whole brouhaha was sparked in large part by the Corwin allegations, which I quoted from above. That's the kid whose feet were pinched until he had bleeding blisters. Mm -hmm. In 1979, Matt Israel published a rebuttal to those allegations, wherein he claimed that he didn't see any broken skin on the child he'd pinched, just a tiny blood blister that cleaned up after a few days. Quote, meantime, Christopher Hirsch is alive, well, happy, healthy, behaving better than ever, and with not a single serious or semi-serious injury from any treatment procedure administered by me or the staff of BRI California. Shortly after that rebuttal was published, Christopher's father took his son to a doctor to have him evaluated. The boy was so panicked that it took three adults to hold him down while they tried to examine his feet. Mm. One observer at the time recalled, there was no part of the skinny boy's body that didn't have a bruise. Then they took off his shoes. It was horrible. Christopher's father claims the insteps of his son's feet were filled with holes, the rough size and circumference of a cigarette burn. BRI had been granted special state permission to do pinching procedures, but the state argued that the specific kinds of pinching that had been done to this kid was not allowed. And they actually had like legal definitions of the type of pinching you were allowed to do, which is weird to me. But that again, is even weird. Within, even within the kind of fucked up standards of what you could do to a kid. At the time, BRI is crossing lines. There were other victims. In Massachusetts in 1978, Michael Cutler was admitted to the ER after being abused at the Providence facility. To stop him from running away, the staff had handcuffed him to a chair. He was hospitalized with blood poisoning in his arm. His mother claims when she saw him that, quote, Michael looked like Auschwitz and was covered with black and blue bruises on his thighs and lacerations on his body. The only aversives she had approved for the school to give her son was a cold shower. In 1980, the school had its first death. Robert Cooper Jr., a 25-year-old autistic student at BRI who was taken to Rhode Island Hospital after he started vomiting. He died at the hospital of a hemorrhagic bowel infarct, and a medical examiner's investigation found no negligence on the part of BRI, but noted that they had not followed proper emergency procedures in taking him to the hospital. Robert's parents defended the school. Quote, It was difficult for myself or my wife to allow Bobby to be pinched or spanked, but there were no alternatives. Every other alternative was no alternative. In a state institution, he would have become a vegetable. On June 17, 1981, another student died, Donnie Aswad. He was restrained in bed by a contraption that kept him flat on his stomach. He died somewhere between 9 and 10 a.m. while restrained. The coroner ruled his death was also was caused by mental retardation and cerebral malformation, which is pretty fucked up. Yeah, um, that's and fucked. I think the first one it may, that first death may have had nothing to do with the school, right? The kid had bowel disorders. Uh, they were just irresponsible and not getting him to a hospital yeah, or somewhere not, proper. 
Yeah, yeah, but but that they may not have caused it. I think the coroner's wrong on this one because mm-hmm. we know that restraining people in this way, this is why a lot of cops have killed people this way, right? And yeah. the fact that he's like, oh no, it was he's he died of mental retardation, not being restrained on his belly. Um for a long period of time. Yeah, seems pretty messed up to me. Um the state of California decided there was enough doubt as a result of this case to put the school on a two year probation. So even though the coroner says this isn't their fault, California evaluators are like, kind of seems like this is their fault. Uh from Wired, quote In 1982, the state's Department of Social Services filed a 63-page legal complaint alleging abuse at the school. The complaint claimed, among other things, that BRI withheld meals, showed staff how to hide students' injuries from regulatory agencies, and, strangely, encouraged students to act out for a film crew, the footage to be used later to to demonstrate how the children had behaved before BRI. Later that year, the state reached a settlement with BRI in California. The school couldn't use anything more punishing than a water spray. The state also forbade Israel who says he'd turned over control of the campus before Oswald's death from stepping foot on the Northridge property. So again, he would, he'd already been kicked out of the school, but the California, I don't think they had evidence, hard evidence that he'd been working there, but they suspected it enough to legally forbid him from entering the property. Mm-hmm. In 1985, Vincent Militek died at, as like Vincent was a, a BRI student. He'd been acting out at the residential home in Seekonk and was restrained in a chair. His hands and feet were put in plastic cuffs. His face was masked and helmeted with a white noise machine, and he suffocated to death. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Um, but of course, BRI was found again not to have caused the death. And I, you get the feeling that a lot of coroners are just saying like, well, if if a kid who's got some sort of mental disability dies in any way it's the fault of that disability yeah it's like they well it's it's it depressingly seems like ah what have happened eventually type of deal is what they're going at yeah um and a district court judge though did find that the school had been negligent in uh approving the therapy for him and they hadn't been basically it isn't their fault that he he suffocated while they had put him in all this stuff, but it wasn't mm. they they should have monitored him more to make sure he didn't suffocate, which again seems like it was their fault, but whatever. I'm not a fucking judge. Yeah. Later that and I guess we should give the judge credit because the coroner was willing to let them off entirely, and the judge does call them negligent, so I don't know. I guess that's your best fucking case scenario. Uh, um, you're only gonna get a half win at this point. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Later that year, the Massachusetts Office of Children carried out an inspection of BRI that ended with an order to close the school. The school appealed and countersued, and a judge suggested that they compromise by ending the use of aversives. Matt Israel, Matt Israel complained that if aversives were ended, or Matt Israel complained because, and, and said basically that like, okay, we ended all of our aversive training, and my students all regressed and started carrying out the behavior again. He took this as proof that his aversive therapy worked, right? As soon as we stopped it, they all regressed and got worse. New York State investigators, though, said this is actually evidence that aversives don't work. The kids were not being treated in any way. They were being controlled by the threat of punishment. And quote, when that threat is removed, they revert to their original behaviors. Yeah, so yeah, they're basically being able to be unfucked with the mental torture they have been dealing with. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's he's not treating them in any way. He's not he's not ending the behavior. He's just he's they're they're stopping the behavior temporarily because they're being tortured. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's uh, it's that's. That's the core of what's happening here, because 
to a lot of people, it, it does work in the short term in that you've got a kid who keeps hitting himself, right? You, um, you punish him with like some form of like you're pinching him or you're, you're spanking him or you're putting him in this helmet, you're spraying him with ammonia whenever he hits himself. He'll stop hitting himself as long as you're applying those punishments whenever he starts the behavior. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not helping him. That, that's, it's really all it's helping is like the adults around him who are unsettled by the behavior, but you're not providing him with anything better. I think you can make an argument that if this kid is like, I don't know, trying to like kill himself or whatever, and you apply an aversive therapy that stops the behavior, maybe mm-hmm. that's the only option you have in that short term. But again, it's still not a long-term solution. And yeah, most no. of these, the vast majority of these kids, it's not that severe. Again, if you've got a kid who's trying to put their head through a glass window and you apply an aversive in the moment to stop that behavior uh, somehow, I guess you could make an argument for it. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, no. um, but it's not, it's still not going to solve the problem. You would need to, they, they, they need long-term therapeutic help. And that's not what is happening at BRI. BRI is just saying, as long as we keep torturing these kids, they won't engage in the behavior you brought them here for, but also they can never leave or stop being tortured, which is, a nightmare yeah (laughs) and it's it's interesting to me because he's 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 rejecting the use of like doping kids up in order to deal with this behavior and yeah it feels like it's just like doping in a different way it's just yeah it's like uh, yeah sure we're not drugging them but we are basically taking ammonia and spraying them in the face so yeah and it's like, you know, drugging them doesn't work because you're just covering up the problem with drugs. And it's like, well, you're just covering up the problem with fucking torture. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of kids would rather, if you have, the, if your choice is be doped up or be tortured, I'm going to guess a lot of kids would choose dope if they could. Uh, yeah. yeah. Doping <laughs> would probably be the choice. <laughs> um, not that I, not again, one of the issues you have in discussing this is that like for kids this severe, there's not a lot of good options at this point. That's not oh, the case no. today. And the school is still around today. Today, there are a lot better options. But in the fucking 70s and 80s, it is the Wild West for this. Yeah. Um, no. And so I'm... you do have to have some understanding for parents who are like, well, what are my fucking options? You know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, they don't have a lot of them. Nope. Not to uh, mitigate Israel's behavior here, but uh, y- there's a lot of desperation on behalf of, of, of the parents and of the schools that are sending kids to BRI. Yeah. Maybe. And I, they're also not in fully aware of everything that's happening at BRI too. Mm-hmm. Yep. So as the court battles raged on, Israel eventually hit upon the idea of bringing one of his most self-abusive students before Judge Ernest Rotenberg for a hearing at the Bristol County Probate Court in 1986. Mm-hmm. Rotenberg found Israel's presentation so convincing that uh, the judge ruled that the patient would have chosen to go to BRI if they'd been mentally capable of doing so. The Office for Children and BRI settled in 1987. The states paid the school half a million dollars, and Judge Rotenberg ruled that BRI would be allowed to continue using aversives as long as each student's treatment plan was approved by a probate court. Matt Israel was so happy with this verdict that, a few years later in 1994, he renamed his Behavior Research Institute in honor of the judge who had allowed his work to continue. From then on, BRI was known as the Judge Rotenberg Center. Uh, and here we go. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Bad shit. How, how, how are you feeling, Aiden? Uh, <laughs> oh well. I didn't think. Whew, I mean, it's a lot, but I kind of figured there's going to be some shit. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's one of the things, unfortunately, especially with the whole Wild West thing. It's definitely gotten a lot better in terms of getting treatment, in terms of whatnot, uh, finding groups and finding people that can help you out in terms of this. I'm just, ooh, let's see where this is going to go. Yeah, um, nowhere good. But you know what is going to go somewhere good? Uh, products and services that sponsor this show? Yeah. Or? Um, well, no, it's not products and services time. What's good is your, your plugs. Aiden. Oh, yes, plugs. Yeah. Uh, you Plug can... With your... Sorry, I'm, I'm just interrupting you with nonsense. No, no, no. That, that, <laughs> that, it's okay. I'm just trying to pull it up. Uh, don't have too much. Uh, my biggest presence is on Twitter at NotchTheB, N-O-T-C-H-T-H-E-B. And I just punch, post a lot of political stuff, bunch of stupid stuff. It's a fun time. Yeah, well, um, that's the episode. Uh, you can find us. I mean, where where you found us? Let's be honest. You found us. You know where we are. You're listening mm-hmm. to us right now. Like, don't don't fuck yes. around with me. Like, you know where we are. You know where we are. Again, yeah. You yeah. Can figure out our other shows. Do it. You won't. Hard. <laughs> it's not going to be hard. All right. Episode over. Hey. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.